Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. the Elysium Project. I'm Hercules Invictus, and I am honored to announce that our Age of Heroes segment, which is starting the show, uh, has as its guest Tenafly Mayor-elect Mark Zinna. Mark has been on the show many times, and uh, now he comes on the show triumphant in this contest and ready uh, to put his stamp on our future. Greetings and welcome, Mark. Hello, Hercules. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. I like I like your opening statement there. Thank you very much. I uh, I appreciate the the kind words. Uh, well, you had a very clear vision uh, from the beginning, and uh, you went out there and communicated it uh, um, continuously, uh, and you left yourself open. Uh, so that people can speak to you and voice their uh, concerns. So uh, uh, your campaign uh, taught me very much, and I'm looking forward to your sharing more of your secrets today. Well, uh, you know, um, the sec- thank you. The, uh, the secrets of the campaign are very straightforward. Um, you know, we ran uh, strategically. We made a decision early on. We were in an uphill battle against a very strong opponent. It uh, was a very difficult challenge, and uh, the incumbent was in for 16 years. And um, we decided that in order to win, we needed to have a get-out-the-vote campaign, which means we needed to drive voters to the polls, and that was very important. And in order to drive voters to the polls, we needed to have a very clear, concise message, and it was consistent with our billboards, our signs, um, our, our print material, uh, what I wore when I was walking and knocking on doors. And, you know, the message we delivered was uh, this mayor's race is about uh, what the people are looking for. And, you know, in, on a local town race, it is not uh, high-minded philosophical issues. It's about the roads, the potholes, the infrastructure, our downtown, um, a lot of basics. And that resonated with the voters. 
And uh, one of the things that was probably the biggest issue uh, was the fact that I knocked on literally thousands of doors wow. to uh, introduce, my, introduce myself to residents. And uh, w- instead of going to uh, traditionally a lot, of, uh, a lot of political folks knock on the doors of the residents who are most highly probable to be voting and um, skipping the houses where they're not likely to be voting, we didn't uh, follow that tact. I literally, we went to a street, we went up one side of the street, walked down the other side of the street, knocked on every single door. Uh, we didn't care whether people were registered to vote, whether they were independents, whether they were Democrats, Republicans, didn't matter. We knocked on everyone's door. And uh, it really made a huge difference. And, uh, and for, the, for the voters that went out, and the, the proof in the pudding, uh, getting beyond the fact that we won, was that um, uh, almost twice as many voters chose uh, a mayoral candidate as they chose as opposed to who they chose for the state legislature or local wow. council races so people came out and double the number of them voted for uh, a mayoral candidate uh, so that really shows that our get out the vote campaign was very effective and frankly getting people to vote is the most important thing for any candidate. I don't care what party you're from. That's the key. We want people to participate in the process. And I can vouch for what you say. This was one of the busier elections. Uh, and also uh, many people who, uh, um, although you can't talk about politics in the voting place, but many people did indicate uh, that they were coming just to vote uh, for a mayor. So, That's uh, so your campaign was successful. It did get people out, a lot of people out, and they did come in uh, to express their opinion as to you know, who they wanted. And that's good. That, that's, that's what we hope for in an election, to get people to vote. And so, now, the real work, now the real work starts. Yes. <laughs> we, we have talked before about how uh, the, the contest is very different from uh, governing. And uh, it's, uh, it's two different things uh, altogether. And you shared a lot of uh, insights uh, about that. Uh, so um, now that governing lies ahead, um, how are you going to approach uh, the governing? So here's an here's a interesting anecdote. So I get uh, I'm, I am sworn in as mayor January 4th at noon. On the on the evening of the election, when we realized we won, I was uh, I was a hero to everyone in the room. On uh, that was Tuesday night. On Wednesday, I got congratulatory texts, emails, phone calls, all that very positive stuff. That was Wednesday. Thursday morning at 7:31 the complaints started rolling in uh, in terms of leaf pickup, potholes, the sewer system, my taxes are too high. Um, that is the nature of governing. There is no honeymoon. It happens very quickly. And then, you know, that's fine. Uh, right now we're going through a, um, a transition period. It's our transition process. And uh, councilman-elect, new councilman Adam Michaels is heading up our transition team. And uh, the first priority of the transition team is to we have a lot of appointments to fill for different committees and uh, commissions and things of that nature. And we're working on who the uh, who the council person perhaps might be to replace me. Uh, 
Um, so we're doing a lot of the mechanics of filling roles, and we're several different new committees we're forming. And in order to awesome. get that done, we yeah we need to get the buy-in of the sitting council people. So it's a it's a collaborative, cooperative effort uh, to move things forward. We've identified several projects we're going to start with. We've kind of had conversations with people when when I'm sworn in in January that uh, we'd like to move forward on these, which they would like to move forward on. So governing is about um, a campaign is about being very singular and getting a particular task accomplished, which is winning. And now governing is about marshalling multiple groups of individuals and forces and ideas to start moving some different ideas forward. So it's two very different processes, and uh, and uh, it's um, you know looking forward to getting started in January. Uh, it sounds incredibly awesome, and I'm looking forward to watching it unfold and uh, doing what I can to help along the way. Um, Thank you. You Thank are. You. You are a student of history, and that is something you've shared with us on uh, many occasions. Uh, And uh, you seem to um, really look for insights into what has happened uh, before and to learn the lessons of the past and to uh, apply them to the challenges of the present and uh, and so forth. And that will serve you very well um, in your governing. Well, you know, one of the most important lessons is – and, um, you know, th- this is kind of, uh, to, to, you know, to, to use a phrase that's been used plenty of times before, you know, this is the life we've chosen. And, and politics and government can be a very, uh, can be a very unpleasant thing. Um, you know, our current politics at the national level uh, is, um, is, is fraught with all kinds of issues and unpleasantness. And, um, you know, people say to me sometimes, uh, you know, the campaign was a little difficult and it's never been like this before. And, and you know, I, the, one of the comments I make to people is, people is, I wonder how Julius Caesar felt about that at the end um, in terms of what it was like, you know, to be in the Roman Senate and, uh, you know, you're stabbed to death. And, because, and, and that was a political process for the Romans. Yeah. So p- politics has always been throughout history forever a rough and tumble world. And so for many people, many people are turned off by politics because of that, but that doesn't change the nature of it. And so therefore for, for people like myself who understand that negative aspect of it, we try to put it out of our head and we try to make decisions and do things that benefit the residents of the town in the best way possible and, uh, you know, if we fail 49% of the time and we're successful 51% of the time, you know, we're, we're in the Hall of Fame multiple times over. And um, it, it's about getting things done over challenging circumstances. And it, what's very interesting is there is no issue that you will ever get 100% agreement on. Uh, right. You know, if, if you had a plan to feed every hungry person in the world and it would cost a penny. 99.9% of the population would agree to it, but there's going to be one-tenth of 1% that are going to have an issue with it and have reasons why it shouldn't be done. And um, 
and, and that's just you have to get used to being able to deal with that. You move past it. You don't worry about it. And you do what you believe is uh, in the interests of the vast majority, hopefully all the residents. And, uh, you know, that's the nature that's the nature of governing. Now, you made it a, a custom uh, to um, listen to people when they're uh, speaking and listen to their concerns and to be able to uh, talk to you directly. And, and you've uh, said many times people can always call you, and uh, we've discussed the many mechanisms that are in place uh, that people can express themselves uh, to the mayor and council. Um, and uh, you're very consistent with that and very uh, creative in some instances. Um, are you planning on uh, continuing with some of the mechanisms that you used uh, during your campaigning? Yes, um, I, I'm going to use the same mechanisms. I fully believe that uh, as an elected person, I, I should make myself available to the public uh, via my, my, my email, which I've had for whatever, 15 or 20 years, the same cell phone number for 30 years. Um, wow. you know, I've, pu I've put my cell phone number on Facebook. I use it everywhere. Uh, people are free to call me. I, I, I literally have conversations with residents every day who have concerns, whether it's recycling, uh, the leaf pickup, snow plowing, health care, uh, what, whatever the issue is. I'm happy to discuss it with someone because I, I think the I didn't I'm not in politics because I believe that my viewpoint is the right viewpoint. I'm involved in this political world because I think what's important is that the public be represented in a way where things are done uh in their best interest and what they want, not because I think it's the right thing to do, but as an advocate for the public and trying to accomplish their goals and paving their roads and making sure their sewers work um, and not about what I want. Um, because people want to go about at the end of the day uh, and driving on smooth roads, going about their life, raising their families, making money, sending their kids to college, and so, you know, government's role is to have the infrastructure together and to take care of that infrastructure so people can go out and live their lives. And that's what this is about. Um, it's not about why any one politician wants to be in office. So to, to, the, the reason I make myself readily available is because I need to understand what people want. Now, of course, I'm going to use my judgment and I'm going to, uh, you know, formulate my opinions based on, based on what's in everyone's, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That old, uh, that old saying holds true. And, uh -huh. uh, you know, when I was knocking on doors, people would say, what's my platform? And I would talk about potholes. And not one person said to me, no, potholes are good. Everyone agreed potholes are bad. And so I got constant feedback on that. And then we'd go on to a second topic, and people would tell me, what was on their mind and they would talk about the downtown or they would talk about parks. And so you, you quickly learn when you knock on thousands of doors and people are telling you over overwhelmingly the same three or four things as a candidate, you wind up coming to the conclusion, well, these three or four things are what I need to focus on. Whether I like it or not doesn't matter. If this is what the public believes is important, then that's what we're going to do. 
and that worked very well. That's that's very effective and it's very real and uh, um, it stays away from the ideological battles that people uh, seem to be uh, engulfed by in on the national uh, level uh, because that's very tiring <laughs> to it's keep track tiring. of all that and to try to make sense out of it and uh, to uh, try to foresee how the, this, the different things that are happening are going to affect our future uh, as a nation and on the local level and uh, personally. So uh, um, th- those things are healthy things to focus on and uh, real uh, rather than abstract. Yeah, and to, to that point, one of the things um, I mentioned, Councilman-elect uh, uh, Michaels is working with me on my transition process and where we've got about 30 or so appointments to make of different people. And we've got uh, multiple individuals we're talking with and interviewing and uh, learning their backgrounds and their, and their, their professional resumes. And there's one thing we're not keeping track of is what political party people belong to through this process. Good. So um, I'm making my choices without knowing whether people are Republican, and I'm a Democrat, so we're, we're not appointing, we're appointing people party blind, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, Independent, we're not even checking if you're registered to vote. Uh, if you're an individual who's looking to serve and you're the most qualified for a particular role, um, that's how we're making that decision and what's in the best interest of the community. And uh, I think... Uh, for all of the roles, the volunteer roles that the residents serve, I think that really has to be the standard. We're not making any of our decisions based on on uh, political party uh, affiliation. That that is awesome. That that is phenomenally uh, awesome, and uh, uh, that sets a very good uh, precedent for hopefully other uh, local uh, um, areas to uh, emulate. Well, I, I hope so, and uh, because it's about uh, it's about the total community. It's not um, it's not about particular segments of the community. So, other than potholes, what were the two other areas uh, <laughs> that people showed the greatest agreement on? <laughs> so, um, our, our downtown downtown needs revitalization. We need new life downtown. Uh, people are people are very happy to hear about. Uh, the uh, the new exciting things that are going to be happening with our hotel complex, the Clinton Inn in awesome. Fly, which uh, they're going to take uh, the existing hotel, completely renovate it, and make it into an assisted living facility. And um, for they're going to build a new hotel and uh, fly a flag of Hilton or Sheridan or Marriott or something of that nature to take advantage of the reservation system. So that's really going to add... Uh, that's going to help uh, spur uh, additional downtown business and people shopping and having lunch downtown and that sort of thing. So that's very exciting. We're going to fix the traffic light over on uh, on Palisades Avenue and uh, Dean Drive. That's one of the for the folks who don't live in Tenafly that are your listeners. That's one of the main uh, traffic problem spots in town. So we're going to get that done in conjunction with the uh, hotel uh, renovations and. Uh, and that's also one of the good things about that. It's going to address the issue of uh, uh, helping to alleviate the tax burden of the residents in town because the new complex is going to be assessed at significantly more dollars 
an existing complex, so that will help us hold the line on taxes uh, in the borough without adding any new children to the school system and no new burdens for the school system. So that's good news. Uh, we've got uh, conversations going on regarding one of our parks right now that uh, we're going to expand. Uh, it's called Hyla Park downtown. You know which park I'm talking about. Yes, yes, of course. And mm-hmm. um, we're going to be commissioning a statute of uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and that uh, is hopefully awesome. find it. Yep. And uh, the Historic Preservation Committee is uh, very excited about that. And uh, next year, I think, is the 125th anniversary, I believe it is, or the 100th anniversary of uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton attempting to vote in Tenafly. And she was, uh, she was turned away by uh, the city councilman at the time. And now uh, the city council next year is going to put a statue up to honor her. And uh, <laughs> it's going to be paid for by private donations. And uh, it's a whole new world. So, you know, that's, that's another thing. Uh, we've got uh, some uh, extra dollars to pour into pothole and road repair. And um, I'm starting to raise the question about leaf pickup. I know it's a rather mundane subject, but the, the no, leaf it's important. pickup. It's very important. The leaf pickup process in most towns, Tenafly included, is fraught with how do you pick them up? What do you do with the leaves? They're in the street. The kids can't walk in the street. You can't park your car. The streets get dirty with leaves, and what's the process? And I've been asking some of my colleagues and some of the uh, architectural landscape professionals a new question, and that new question is, why do we pick up the leaves at all? And so they kind of looked at me strangely, and they uh, went to their drawing boards, and they're starting to understand a little better about the whole issue of grinding down leaves um, which we're doing at a, a town level after we pick them up, and perhaps we should be doing them on a house-by-house house level the same way we cut the lawns, perhaps. We uh, put an attachment on our lawnmower or we grind our leaves and turn it to highly nutritious topsoil on site, yes. which is ha- what happens to the leaves after we're done spending millions of dollars collecting them anyway at our town uh, recycling center. And so we're going to take a very serious look at if there's a way to change the entire leaf collection process that both benefits the residents, doesn't burden them, but um, uh, and helps the environment while taking costs out of the system. And it could be that we change our entire mindset on going from leaf collection to grinding the leaves and turning it into topsoil that are more nutrients for our lawns and our backyards and our bushes and keeping it on site. So there's uh, lots of work to do on that. And uh, we've got uh, a couple of professionals who have volunteered their time to look into it. And so that's going on as we speak. Oh, that is fantastic. And that kind of reframes the whole uh um, the whole problem and turns it into something else that's actually uh, friendlier for the environment. Um, and uh, that, that's awesome. That's, that's exactly what we're looking at. We're looking at uh, potentially simplifying our recycling process. Right now we have you know, cardboard and paper pickup day. Then we have another day for picking up plastics and bottles. And recycling has gotten both more expensive and uh, more complicated 
and uh, recycling. They're in, in, in every state in the country, recycling is no longer a net financial benefit to any municipality. Right. It costs money, and it's getting close to the point of it's costing almost as much to recycle as it is to turn things into garbage, and we don't want to do that. Uh, for environmental reasons, obviously, uh, but we want to find a way to potentially simplify the process, and that might where that where that means we're looking at and investigating single stream recycling as opposed to the way we're doing it now to make it simpler, more efficient, um, and pretty much at the same cost structure that we're uh, spending now. Um, and that issue is one that has come to my attention as I wander around uh, the town uh, and uh, speak with people. Um, more than a handful have uh, uh, brought up the question of recycling because they, they've heard some of the things that you just uh, mentioned. Uh, and they're wondering why they have to recycle at home and that businesses uh, uh, don't have to recycle. And uh, recycling isn't what it once was anyway. And everybody agrees that we shouldn't contribute to uh, you know, having more garbage um, and then filling up the land with it. But uh, uh, the fact that we're continuing with the systems that's no longer working uh, for us and for individuals, that's something that people did express some concern about. No, there's a, and, and people are right. There's, there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about recycling. First off, uh, businesses are required to recycle. Um, you know, we pick up the, the cardboard recyclables from businesses in town. They're required to recycle their plastics. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone is recycling that should be. So residents can be witnessing events where people are not recycling, but those people, those businesses should be recycling. They're not allowed to be throwing their plastic water bottles into the garbage. They should be recycling the cardboard, their plastic, like everyone else, okay? First. Second thing is uh, what happens is, like, let's – the big evil are plastic bags. When people take the plastic yeah. bags from the supermarkets, whatever it might be, and they throw those plastic bags into the plastic recyclables, Plastic bags are not recyclable. They're garbage. So if too many people do that, what happens is when our recycling truck shows up at the recycling yard um, out in Patterson, uh, their truck could get rejected. And then everything in that recycling truck is treated as garbage and then goes to an incinerator and gets burned for fuel to create electricity. And we have to pay for that to be burned. So, all the hmm. effort that went into that recycling process is wasted. And so what we're trying to do is simplify the process so we have less waste, more recycling. And um, a lot of people have also uh, asked uh, questions about uh, how the town is no longer picking up uh, uh, grass. Right, or grass, correct. Grass cuttings, yes. Um, and. Right. Uh, so these are going to be processed uh, on in the yards, as you said, and it's going to go back to fertilizing the soil by producing uh, topsoil. There were initiatives that I remember in the uh, in city in, when I lived in Queens. Uh, I was involved with some projects with hospitals and the botanical gardens uh, where they had uh, earthworms, and you would take food that... Uh, um, the, the earthworms could eat and you throw it in there and you get like very high quality uh, topsoil 
Uh, and uh, the hospital was giving this food to the uh, botanical gardens, and then they were processing, and then they were making the topsoil available to anybody in the community uh, who needed it. Um, will we be looking at like solutions like that? Right. So uh, I'll give you an example in my own yard. For years, uh, you know, on whether we've whether we've used the landscape or we've cut the lawn ourselves, and we've gone back and forth with this. Um, we, uh, we, we've always had a lawnmower that has mulching blades on it. Uh, we don't pick up our own grass. It all gets churned right back into the ground again. So uh, in, in my house, there is no grass to be picked up. Uh, so that makes that very simple. And my lawn grows every year. It's green. There's no problems. Um, so there really is, for practical purposes, no reason for anyone to need grass clippings taken off their property. Uh, we actually have a small little section of our property that is kind of a little like a wooded patch. It's very small. It's the size of a driveway where we actually rake and blow our leaves into that every year. And then the snow comes, the rains come, and every year the leaves disappear and they're gone. And we do the process over again. And uh, it just creates topsoil, nutrient-rich topsoil and so what happens is every year that little stand of trees, the ground, everything on the ground is growing in faster and more and more because it's constantly refreshed with new nutrients. And um, while that's just a small little laboratory test there, um, it, it, it works. And there's, there's multitudes of other people that do the same thing. So picking up grass clippings, you know, why are we picking them up? We, we don't need to. The, the, the right. blades, the equipment, it's all out there that we can keep it. And then why spend the money to have the grass clippings picked up when it doesn't need to be picked up? Makes sense. Right. <laughs> well, part of it, it is, uh, is, um, is, is explaining it to residents, educating people, giving them an opportunity to test it for themselves and uh, see it for themselves. And uh, once people see and learn these sort of things, uh, they, uh, the message is clear and um, easy to digest and makes sense. People have a tendency to be willing to change their behaviors for these items, especially when it's environmentally friendly. I mean, right now we're picking up, we're, we're picking up the leaves, okay, and we mm -hmm. can be using the people who are picking up the leaves to be fixing potholes in the roads, right? So right. we're picking up leaves, we're bringing them to... Uh, our recycling center, we dump the leaves out. We, well, first what we do is we ha put them in a, like a hopper. We chop them down so we reduce the volume, okay, the cubic volume. Then we put them in piles. They sit there literally for 12 months. And at the end of the 12 months, and we move them around so they get aerated. And at the end of the 12 months, there's this company that comes in, and we give them all these rotting away leaves that are turning into topsoil. The company takes it from us, and then they go out and sell it as topsoil. So when you think about this 12-month process we're doing every year and then removing thousands of tons of new topsoil from our community and our town that we can keep here, uh, it doesn't make any sense. We want to keep that topsoil and nutrients on everyone's property. And that, that's, that's, that's what we're looking at. So back to the question I asked, not how we make the process better, but why are we picking up the leaves? Because that question leads 
to a whole different set of other questions and potential answers. That's very environmentally sound, and it's outside the box. And uh, um, it should be uh, uh, very interesting, like you said, re-educating people or educating them you know, in the advantages of doing it uh, this way. And we have a lot of fine uh, cultural institutions in town, like the library and the senior center. Uh, so there's plenty of uh, uh, venues uh, to carry out this education process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> any well, any other uh, changes we can expect to see? That that is awesome. I'm really impressed with that. Uh, any other changes that uh, we can expect in uh, uh, your first year as our new mayor? Well, we're going to be, um, you know, it cha- it's it's uh, it's evolution, not revolution. Correct. Okay. Um, you know, change is always challenging. Um, we're, um, we're going to be opening up our new dog park very soon. I was there yesterday at the site. The fencing was going up, so that's going to be opening up uh, shortly, uh, if not in December, I'm sure in January. So people are very excited about that. And uh, at the last minute, we decided to move the dog park uh, within, the, within the same property, moved it a couple of feet one way or the other, and uh, we're creating more of an area that is lit with sunlight for our gardening and uh, gardening and planting clubs so that they awesome. can have more land to plant with. So that's great for them. Um, the library is uh, looking to do some interior. Our library is uh, well-loved and highly used by our community. And you would think yeah. in this modern day of uh, – of, of technology mayhem that people don't go to libraries anymore. I go over to the library quite frequently to see what's going on there. It's always filled with people. Now, yes, yeah. they're on computers, they're reading books, they're having book club meetings, there's children in there. It's actually a great community resource and community center of the library. So they're going to be looking to make some improvements over there. Um, of course, we've talked about the, the road program and Hyla Park. Um, we've got uh, a new national restaurant that uh, reached out to me last week to see if there is an opportunity for them to come to Tenafly. And uh, they're starting to look around at our realist, which I said, yes, of course, we'd love to talk to you. And uh, it's a restaurant for downtown that people would love to go to. And uh, they're looking for property in Tenafly. So we're excited about that. Um, we're going to be renovated. There's renovations going to start at the, uh, Valero gas station at the corner of Clinton Avenue and Tenafly Road. Um, so um, they're going to be removing their car repair service from there, keeping half their pumps and uh, renovating the building. So that's going to be very a good plus for the environment that we're not going to have oil changes there anymore. It's going to be located somewhere else. And so we've got a lot of different projects that are underway downtown that we're going to start push for, pushing forward. And uh, a lot of that is generated by creating some new life downtown and also, very importantly, some relief for the taxpayers so that we have business properties um, starting to carry a larger responsibility for uh, paying taxes and paying for our schools and and, and reducing the burden a little bit off the residents. That would be a very welcome thing. Uh, uh, wow, I'm very impressed, um, and 
uh, wow, <laughs> what can I say? Um, Mark, I wish you the greatest success in this, Thank your you, new Hercules. endeavor, and in all your other endeavors. I look forward to our continued uh, conversation on the Elysium Project. Uh, and you. you are an accessible person, and you do get back to people uh, very uh, quickly, and you do consider what they say. How can people reach out to you? Well, my, uh, my email is mark, M-A-R-K, underscore Zinna, Z-I-N-N-A, at yahoo.com. And my cell number is 917-545-3941. Thank you again, Mark. Uh, until we speak again, joyous journeys. And again, congratulations. Thank you, Hercules. Have a great evening, and thank you for having me on again. You too, and thanks for being on. Um, we're going to listen to you too. Uh, we're going to listen to Bone Poets Orchestra's Evolve, and then we'll be back with Dan Loa and the American Workforce Association.
American Workforce Association segment, Common Bonds. The host is Dan Loa, and his guest today is Chris Estevez. Greetings and welcome, Dan. How are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Looking forward to Thanksgiving tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, nice. It should be uh, good. You know, lots of things to be uh, thankful for and whatnot. Oh, most certainly so, and I'm thankful that you're on the show, and I'm looking forward to uh, uh, your upcoming segment. So I give you the scepter of Zeus. Uh, the show is yours. Nice. The Chris, how are you? I'm on. Nice, nice. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. So, yeah, tell us uh, about yourself then. <laughs> well, what would you like to know? Oh, you know, your background, you know, how you got interested in labor issues and, you know, how that, you know, um, complements, you know, you working with Hispanic uh, civil rights and whatnot. Well, I I got interested in labor issues from a very young age. Uh, my mother worked for a union um, when I was, when I, starting when I was a toddler, um, and I, so I was always at the union hall. Uh, she worked for this union called District 65 that um, represented workers in light manufacturing and packaging in uh, New Jersey. And I didn't know that when I was a kid. I just knew that we were at the union. Um, but I did see her all the time helping people um, and talking about helping people. And um, and it wasn't just at work. She would I would see her, you know, going out of her way to help people in the community as well. And as I grew up, um, you know, I wanted to be part of that. So when I went to college, um, I I ended up taking a class uh, called um, uh, the, the basically Labor 101, and got introduced to labor studies, and that became my my field of study in college, um, and. Um, and basically that was how I got introduced to it. And while I was in grad school, uh, working on my master's in labor relations, um, I had an opportunity to intern at the AFL-CIO and that led to me getting hired there and working as an education and training coordinator, um, where I got to work on developing programs to recruit and train, 
um, minorities and women into, into union construction jobs. And I did that for eight years. And I really got to do a lot of uh, work where we tied uh, labor organizing and labor um, issues to community issues. And um, so that's how I got my start. No, no. Oh, it must have been really interesting then, you know, really getting into like the nuances of like organizing, for example. Definitely. You know, during this whole time, you know, I, I also had a very a big interest in um, my Latino community and the issues and the things that our community was going through. Um, I had actually double major in college. Um, I did uh, my one major was labor studies. My other major was Puerto Rican and, and Hispanic Caribbean studies, uh, which they now call Latino studies. And so um, upon you know finishing college, I was involved with a lot of uh, community organizing, the Latino community as well. So we, um, you know, we just were, were involved in a, in a plethora of issues that were impacting the Latino community. And I had the opportunity through my job and through my community organizing to kind of marry the two things together. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's um, really great. Now, would you uh, be willing to tell us about your work in Freehold? You know, that was always story I found like really interesting there. Yeah, so so about 2003, um, when I was already at the AFL-CIO, and we had started this organization a few years earlier called the Latino Leadership Alliance. Um, so so a lot of groups, um, when people would be having issues at the local level, uh, would reach out to us. Um, so um, I got a call about a, a kind of a crisis that was developing in Freehold, back in 2003, where um, you had day laborers that were gathering um, in this one strip of the street. Um, and there was a big backlash from the, from the, uh, the general community. Um, there was this uh, anti-immigrant uh, feeling and, and um, sentiment, um, and they were pressuring their politicians to do something about what they considered to be this uh, immigrant and day labor problem. So you had some some um, uh, politicians who decided that they would cave to some of the worst elements in their community and and basically um, you know uh, treat the day laborers like criminals. And they threatened the day laborers uh, that if they didn't stop you know congregating for work along this road, that they would um, they'd arrest them. Um, and you know, and possibly even turn them over to ICE. So, some community folks in Freehold called me, asked me to come down and see what I could do to help. Um, and I went there, and um, we tried to talk to the politicians. Um, you know, we the, what was really crazy about the whole thing is that, you know, it wasn't even like a Republican um, city council in there. Uh, these were Democrats, and. Up until that point, I, you know, I had in my mind that, um, you know, the Republicans were the bad guys and the Democrats were the good progressive guys. Um, okay. And I found out at that point that that's not always, it's not always that that straightforward, right? Um, if we only were. Yeah, right. Um, so <laughs> basically, I tried to help. You know, I tried to put it from a perspective to the to the local Democrats that, you know, I think that they had overreacted when they were when they were. Uh, 
uh, approach by you know these members of the community and um, that they made a bad decision and you know we could help them um, you know maybe uh, walk it all back right um, and so you know they you know they had already gone out in the Lynn and and promised that they were going that these people were still on the street that they were going to to, to arrest them um, you know we were prepared to challenge that and we were challenging that we're ready to go to court and, and put a block to that. But in the meantime, we also didn't want to create a situation where these day laborers would actually get arrested because, you know, if someone uh, puts an unjust law in front of me, I can participate in civil disobedience um, and, and, and maybe, you know, get arrested and be out the next day. But a day laborer whose you know whose um, status in this country is precarious, um, they get arrested. They may end up in ICE and they may end up deported, and that could have a huge impact on their families um, here or back in their home country. So, you know, we need to find a way to help them um, without putting them in un- any undue bad situation. So we basically, you know, worked with. Some local clergy, um, especially at this one African American church, um, where they agreed to um, create a sanctuary space for um, these these day laborers. Um, we knew that if it was on the church property, um, that these guys were were congregating in the morning for work, um, that the police would not come onto that private church property and try to arrest them. So. We ended up doing was, you know, the church was good enough to to work with us, and we were able to set up a, 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 a in there. They had an old church building and a new church building. The old church building was a, kind of abandoned, um, and they were they were had plans in a year to to convert that into a uh, a daycare center. But in the meantime, it was abandoned. So we got an agreement that if the day laborers help fix it up a little bit and make it usable that they would be able to use it as a hiring hall where um, contractors could come and hire them from there. Um, And we did that. A lot of groups um, who were allies of the day laborers, a lot of folks came down and helped, um, helped bring food, cook food, um, helped set up logistics. And we set up a whole system where, you know, contractors could pull into the, to the parking lot, um, say what they were looking for and, We'd have guys mustering inside the inside the old church um, to be able to come out and and go and get work. And you know, we also let the contractors know that if they tried to steal their wages, um, that we would you know that we would uh, keep track of their uh, license plate numbers and all that stuff, so that and, and that they wouldn't be able to come and use um, this this hiring center again. Um, it, you know, it worked for a while. Um, but then, you know, the opposition started to, you know, uh, you know, kind of camp out in front of here and intimidate the contractors. Um, but so there was, it, you know, there's a lot of tension. Um, eventually, you know, we won, we won some court battles, um, and the workers were able to, you know, go back to, you know, looking for work anywhere in town that they wanted to. Um, but so we didn't necessarily need the hiring center as much anymore over the next year or so, um, but they still needed services and help. And over over a period of time, 
um, that continued services to them uh, turned into what is now known as Casa Freehold, which is an organization that provides you know, services to immigrant families in freehold. Um, the other thing that came out of it was the support network that we built up around, um, around this entire effort, especially in the Latino community, um, came from all over the, um, Mamas County, not just in Freehold itself. And so, um, you know, within a short amount of time, that group that had gotten together um, stayed together and um, formed an organization that is now, we now know as the um, Latino Coalition. Um, and so, which is made up of Latino community organizers from all over Monmouth County. I mean, they're very active and, they, and they're very involved in, in all the places in Monmouth County where Latinos um, reside. So, um, and that's one of the organizations, um, that, that county organization is one of the organizations that makes up the statewide group that I'm the president of, which is the Latino Action Network. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, really great. You know, full disclosure to the audience, I am the communications vice president of Latino Action Network for that. But I really like that story. And a very good one at that. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, I really like that story because it does, one, eliminate or illuminate uh, the ways that you were able to help these workers in a setting that was quite difficult. Uh, you know, you were able to employ, you know, organizing tactics, not necessarily a union campaign as it's usually defined, which is quite cumbersome, uh, quite unfortunately. And you were able to produce great results. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that we found was, um, you know, the when we first started that project there and working with those, with those workers, uh, the idea was a hiring hall um, – and and we tried to, to, to build that model. Um, we were we were lucky enough to have people that we could work with who had been doing a lot of um, um, research on these issues, and not just research, but actual um, casework on this. Um, and one one of those people was Rich Cunningham, um, was the founder of New Labor, um, and he was a good friend of mine. And I asked him to consult on this whole project. And and what he had told me was that even though you know, people were creating these work, um, these 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 hiring halls throughout the country. Um, that there were issues with the hiring halls, and and he was right because we started to see those things. You know, at first people used it, but then they start moving away from it as um, they 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 ended up being not the best place for these guys to get work. Um, you know, these guys fared better out on the street than they did at an organized um, hiring hall. Um, and that mostly had to do with, with the fact that at an organized hiring hall, the opposition, the anti-immigrant groups, would have a target of where to to put the pressure on the um, contractors. So, but that just because the hiring hall piece wasn't, you know, wasn't working, or and it wasn't just work, not working in our location, but it wasn't working anywhere in the country, uh, not in the long haul. It would work only for a short amount of time that what was really more effective was these organizations that did more than just hiring hall that did, you know, um, social services for folks who help people fight for, um, stolen wages, right. So, uh, you know, to go after contractors who took their wages, uh, to fight against, 
you know, um, any unfair ordinances by by towns. So, you know, so that what we so what we ended up with was in freehold was a model that was actually uh, built around the best practices of what had worked in uh, and around the entire nation. Um, so Casa Freehold and the Latino Coalition, uh, those two groups together in Mamas County really um, represent the, the best, uh, you know, the best practices in assisting um, immigrant communities and, and especially in immigrant communities in in these emerging um in these emerging places and when i say emerging places i mean um there is traditional um traditional uh uh communities where immigrants um have tended to go over decades and over the past 100 years so you expect to see uh, large numbers of immigrants in elizabeth new jersey in newark in Patterson, in Jersey City, in those places. And those places tend to have, because of this long, long history of, of immigrants settling there, they have very rich infrastructure for, um, uh, for, for helping those, those communities. They have uh, community service organizations. They have all kinds of services. Um, but when you go to a place like Freehold, which is you know, a very suburban, almost rural area, of, you know, beginning of the rural areas of the state, um, where immigrants in the early 2000s were, you know, at least in any significant numbers, was a new phenomenon. Um, there was no infrastructure for them, and we had to build that. And so that's one of the things that um, Latino Action Network has has kind of been our our our, our thing is that we um, do our best to get into those places that do not have this established, long-established infrastructure, we've, we've gone in and worked with communities that are emerging and, and are just building up that infrastructure um, and help those communities that don't have, you know, all the uh, community leaders already in place. You know, we have to go in there, identify people, train them up, and support them so they can be the leaders. Oh, yeah, that's uh, fascinating that way. I myself was reading about uh, workers in Philadelphia and how that was such an established place for like textile workers that it became like a bastion of like the labor movement in the 20s when otherwise the movement was like struggling variously. But here they were making all these stockings for the uh, Jazz Age flappers. So there was a lot of uh, jobs that way. And they talked about like the nature of the community like around these factories. And it was really interesting. For example, like the co- like, it's not only the thing about union organizing or organizing. I found it's not just organizing the work. It really is like a combination of also the place, for example, and then like a lot of times, you know, in the United States, it is like ethnic workers banding together. You know, in this case, we have Hispanic workers. You know, historically, a lot of Jewish workers banded together for unions in the garment industries. Uh, for example, in New York City. Uh, especially, and then, you know, Italians, Irish Americans were very big in, like, the trade unions as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, one of the things that, that I'm doing now through my, my job at CWA, um, you know, we work with this partner organization called New Jersey Communities United, 
um, and and they're a community organizing organization, um, and we're a labor union, um, but we partner with them on 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 organizing, um, and especially around uh, childcare workers, both in-home childcare providers and center providers, and you know because they are in the community doing um, actions around home foreclosures um, and you know. Um, um, access to public education um, and they've they have like this reach into the community we're organizing people who you know who are um, their jobs are in those same communities because mm-hmm. they're they're basically um, taking care of children they're working as child care providers in their own homes in these communities so we've been able we were able to organize um, these in-home child care providers who even though they are individual, businesses in a sense um they get their uh, you know some of their pay from the state government because if there's families who are um their child care is subsidized by the state um these these um in-home providers are licensed and certified to take care of those kids and receive that money from the state so we've been able we were able to actually organize these workers and negotiate with the state for for a contract that gives these workers rights and also gives them an ability to bargain over like the rates that they that they earn um and we were only able to do that through working in partnership with a community organization that is good at going door to door and doing community level work um and because of the success of that uh, drive we were able to um, take that and go into beginning to organize center-based work, um, child care workers who are like teachers in preschools in the North area. And, and, and that's an, an area where, you know, it looked kind of more like a regular union organizing drive, but it was married with, you know, not just talk, working with these workers around their workplace issues, but also around the community issues. And that has played really well for us because as these workers, after they, they chose to have a union and to organize with us, um, because they were engaged in community organizing work around community issues, uh, around community issues, the whenever the workers had an action in, in trying to get their contract, the community would come out and support them. So there's kind of like a symbi- symbiotic um, relationship there where where the workers and the union support the community and in turn the community supports the the workers and the union and so it helped us that that relationship helped us get our first contract this past summer at la casa de don pedro which has centers throughout um, child, early childhood education centers throughout newark the workers there are a lot of them are low-paid workers making a little bit over the minimum wage. We were able to raise their wage, um, you know, over the minimum wage to, you know, $12, $13, $14 an hour, you know, help them push them towards that 15 that we want. Um, and and even after we got the contract, um, you know, when management, uh, you know, acted in a, in a, in a bad way um, and was, was trying to deny these workers their rights, when the workers – you know, stormed the boss's office to demand their rights. 
um, it was like they didn't have to ask the community to come, the community to come with them. The community just was like, "Hey, you guys are going in there. We're going in there with you," and it was really great to see like how like this connection between labor organizing and community organizing, which doesn't you know at least in recent times doesn't seem to happen as much as it used to, uh, you know, back in those days of the 20s and 30s. So we're going back to this old model of like what you're talking about in those, you know, time of factory workers and all that, where what happens in the workplace and what happens in the community are one and the same. Yeah, yeah, you really get that when you do read a lot of that, like like Flint, Michigan being like a union town or working class like hub and you know, they talk about even like Reading, Pennsylvania outside of Philly being like that. You know, it's difficult nowadays more so that, you know, we have we might have like a large office building based in, you know, a suburban setting like Mercer or Middlesex and then you have everybody commuting an hour every which direction quite often. So the community subsequently is dispersed. Quite unfortunately, and people don't really live, like, in, like, communities nowadays aren't really, like, the way they were then uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, people don't really, like, see their neighbors as much. You know, they're able to watch TV or, you know, they fight over fence lines. Quite yeah, unfortunately, definitely. to the detriment of organizing. Definitely. And, and, you know, what you end up seeing is, like I said, you need to have a different model of organizing um, you know, in the, the the example of La Casa Don Pedro that I just told you about, you know, their centers, you know, lend themselves to this type of organizing because they are um, in the middle of these communities. They have to be because the service that they to provide is to low-wage, you know, families that, you know, have to have um, um, school and, and child care within walking distance of their home. So, in that sense, it lends itself. And, but like what you're talking about, there's a lot of situations where people who live like in New Brunswick and their, the, their jobs are in Piscataway, right? Um, they, they get on buses or vans to travel to their jobs. So you're not necessarily going to you know, have an action outside of the, the factory where they're working or the, the packing plant where they're working and have the community show up because they're all right around there. So you have to have a strategy to to do most of your organizing with them in their home community in New Brunswick. And that's something like, for example, that New Labor is a great example of a, of a group that gets that and does, you know, the vast majority of their organizing, not in the places where these people work, but rather where they live. Yeah, New Labor does do a really good job that way, and they are quite interesting because they are looking at like new models that was really interesting what you were saying though about like the child care workers and organizing like people who are really isolated because that does come up again and again you know when you have precarious workers or like independent contractors working from home for example is a big issue definitely because then you don't have any of like you don't have like one you don't have like the 700 guys of like the famous flint UAW strikes, you don't have like a break room to organize, you can't go organize outside the gate or at the local bar nearby. It just brings up all these questions. But then we have social media and Facebook for this, that, which is uh, not the best 
you know alternative, but it is something nowadays. Well, it's you know it's it's you have to always change with the times, and you know the new town square is social media, right? Um, people aren't getting together in the middle of town on a warm day; they're they're staring at their phones. So, if you can if you can find a way to harness that in that you know that that space, um, you know there's things that you can do with that. And so, you know, but the question is is you know how do you how do you provide something in that space that's of use to people who are working, you know, individually from their homes, something that's useful to them. Um, and that, and that's, that's really the, the question. And it's hard. It's a hard um, question to answer. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. Now people want various resources. There are things that people can be offered that can be offered online, different services, but, you know, it is the question of our times, you know, organizing, you know, in this changing uh, landscape of work, you know, when we're faced with, like, serious issues. Yeah. Continuously. I mean, you, know, and, you know, the question is, 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 you know, in some ways just entering into dialogue with them and finding out, like, well, you know, what are the difficulties you are having and seeing how many other people are having the same difficulties and if coming together, you know, you can provide – uh, help or resources to them, and that's usually what people need the most, right? Is that kind of help, and um, you know, and if you can, and if they can find that they're all helpful to each other, and coming together is, you know, is beneficial to all of them, then you have the beginnings of something like a union, right? Because that's what a union is. It's you're 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 basically you know putting all of your individual strengths together, um, and to be able to then make demands of the employers and these people all work for different employers but if they're all but if everybody who does a specific kind of work all bends together and creates the new rules under which they're going to that they they're going to work and that if those rules aren't followed by the employers then none of them will work um that that can change the dynamic tremendously yeah that is really the key then getting people work together in that situation it is something that's you know key always um one of the ways but, to look at it one of the ways to look at it, i would say is to study the craft unions of you know the 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 you know the 1800s and the early 1900s where you know you had someone who's a shoemaker and they would have like a shoemaker's guild um and you know, these, these people, a lot of them worked independently or in small groups, um, and they were they competed against each other uh, to a certain extent. But by having a guild, they would come up with certain rules in terms of, like, what kind of training you had to have or what kind of, you know, what, what it would take to be part of that guild. And anybody who didn't follow those rules, you know, they would band together to, to keep them out. Right. Um, so, you know, they, they were able to, you know, keep the standard of their work, um, and the dignity for their work at a, at a certain level, um, by banding together. So when you look at, when you look at that, that model is still in place, um, through the union construction trades, for example, where, they have, you know, certain standards for a plumber that, you know, in order to be considered, you know, you start off as an apprentice plumber, do five years of an apprenticeship, and at the end of that apprenticeship, you're considered a journeyman, 
um, and then, you know, only journeymen that have gone through that, um, that apprenticeship could sit for a license to be a master plumber, right? And these terms, apprentice, journeyman, master, these are, these are terms that go back to feudal times, you know? Um, but it works for them because they're able to create a certain standard um, that – and say that anybody who doesn't you know, live up to the standard um, is, should not be rewarded with, with contracts, right? And then because they band together and they're, they're a unified force, they're actually able to use their, uni- their unity to, to go to the powers that be in, in government and, and lobby to get um, their standards made, the standards, of, of government, turn those into the government standards, right? Um, teachers, public school teachers, you know, do the same thing. They push for certain standards for to become a certified teacher, and they, they insist that the government adopt those standards. Um, and, and that's what makes it possible for them to, you know, to maintain a certain level of pay and protections for their jobs because they say, look, you know, we created these standards. We use our collective power to get government to, to recognize these standards. And now, um, you know, so nobody can come and undercut us by showing up without um, this level of training or, or credentials, right? So that's something that a lot of gig workers could look at as a model and say, hey, if I'm in the communications business, I'm a you know, freelance um, uh, you know, communications person, you know, I can you know, be part of a guild that sets certain standards and then says, look, if you, you, know, if you want the best people, you, you should pick from out of this guild or out of this association. Um, uh, for it, because if you go outside of that and the person's not part of this association, you don't know what you're getting. You don't know what those people's like real backgrounds and credentials are, right? Um, so anyway, that's one model to look at. That is not a new model. It goes back, you know, hundreds of years, if not longer. Yeah, that's a funny thing. Sometimes, like everything old is new again. We're finding. Mm-hmm. We thought. The alt-right wasn't a problem, you know, now they're a problem. But, you know, we're also able to discover these old things like hiring halls and, you know, banding together like a guild, you know, that's really, like, helpful to workers. You know, it's funny that both the unions, the building trade unions, and then the Hollywood unions employ a very similar model that's really interesting because it is, you know, you have individuals working together, uh, but they also work apart and independently quite often doing their professions. Yeah. And those same those same those same structures could end up being discriminatory as well. So, you know, let's not romanticize it. You know, these construction unions, um, at, you know, at different times discriminated against the newcomers. So there was time there was times in American history where, you know, there was, uh, you know, Irish people were not welcome, and some a lot of these trade unions. Um, and then they had to assert themselves and get themselves in. And then those those same Irish people with the people who came before them would, would say that the Italians were welcome, right? Um, and, and then the Italians had to assert themselves. And then down the road, you know, they, they excluded African-Americans and Latinos. And, you know, up until very recently, and it's only now starting to change where, 
um, you know, through work that we've done, uh, we've been able to kind of kick that door down. Um, so now you have, you know, more African-Americans and Latinos and women uh, participating in construction unions um, through, you know, through their apprenticeship programs. And so what was once a, you know, something that had been a, an exclusive club and organization that excluded them now includes them, um, you know, how we look at those organizations is a little bit different if they're acting the right way, right? And those few that still are hanging on to the old ways and being discriminatory, you know, we have to go and, and put pressure on them to change. But, you know, nowadays it's, there's very few construction unions who are, you know, practicing um, just, you know, real discriminatory uh, practices. Most of them, you know, part because they've been pressured to change, but also because, you know, their model of of replicating um, themselves, you know, with you know, with their, you know, the white father with their white son, um, stopped working because a lot of their their sons weren't follow were not following them into the trades, right? Um, as the fathers, um, you know, through this blue collar job moved into the middle class, was able to send their sons and daughters to college. These college educated kids don't necessarily want to be, you know, on a roof laying tar on a hot summer day, right? Or laying brick on, on a hot summer day. And you just go through all the trades and you say, you know, so so they've been having a hard time even recruiting their own sons or even wanting their own sons, daughters to follow them into the trade. So now finally you're starting to see, you know, minority groups that had been excluded in the past actually being recruited um, because without them, these organizations would die. That's interesting then. So they're able to change a bit that way. No, granted, the building trades do have any number of uh, issues, uh, especially here in New Jersey. They are more apt to be uh, more moderate in nature and not understand some of the aggregate economic forces as well. Or when seeing a diminishing pile, a diminishing pie, they're trying to get their own cut to the detriment of everyone when the ideal should be that we grow the pie and everybody should get an equitable slice. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, that's one of the struggles. But it's really, you know, a struggle between the building trades or that craft model um, that uh, and the industrial model of union organizing um, that is not unique to New Jersey and it's not unique to our times. Um, this goes back to the early days of unions um, and back when, we had the American Federation of Labor only. Like now we have the AFL-CIO, but there was a time when it was only the AFL, and and the craft unions dominated the the American Federation of Labor, and it was when, you know, the there was a rift that grew up with the uh, the uh, industrial organizations, the industrial unions, and when industrial I mean like the 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 folks who worked in GM and Ford and in these big factories. Um, that had a, a different model of organizing workers than the crafts, where the crafts unions were about exclusivity and, you know, maintaining a small but powerful group of workers who, you know, who were able to do this work. The industrial unions would go into these large 
institutions, factories or hospitals or whatever, and organize everybody and would not organize them by craft. Um, they would just say everybody who works in this place is part of our union. Um, and so because the, the the industrial unions had more diversity in their membership, meaning that you had workers that did different kind of work, um, you know, their, um, their model and their outlook is different um, than a union that has a very narrow um, uh, interest, right, um, and a small group interest to say, you know, all we care about is getting work for this particular small group of people. When you're when you have a bigger um, audience in a sense, a bigger membership that's very diverse, um, you you start finding out that just organizing around wages and healthcare is not enough. You have to be organizing around all their all their issues in and out of the workplace. So industrial unions tend to have a different model than um, than the craft unions. Yeah, there you go. So the very nature of the model makes it so that they're more progressive and understand like these outlying issues that like affect their members that you know, the unions that are on the forefront of the fight for Medicare for all, for example. You know, mm-hmm. CWA, you know, here in New Jersey was at the forefront of the fight for fifteen as that was progressing. Uh, and as that as that yeah. uh, fight went on. So it was really great that way and they really understand these issues and they're able and they're more willing to join coalitions. Uh and that really helps. You know, when you have these issues in the economy that aren't really, you know, the same as they were, for example, when you have, you know, declining wages that nobody really seems to want to address, but it affects everybody. No, definitely. And, you know, there, there's still some backward thinking people who think that, you know, they don't want to get this legislation passed to benefit all workers because they want to, have these benefits only provided to the members of their union, right? Um, so that they can they can use that to say, hey, if you want to have good health care, if you want to have good wages, you have to be a part of our organization. Um, look, we'd love to have everybody as part of our union, but at the same time, we understand that, you know, we're not just there to 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 represent a narrow group of people. We're there to make you know, we're, we're there to help all workers. And when you help all workers, you help our members as well, right? Um, so in a way, you know, whenever we organize to get a benefit for all workers that had previously only only our members had access to, um, you know, you start to make yourself obsolete, at least in that area, right? If we end up with Medicare for all or, or universal health care, and that's something that won't be unique to unions anymore in terms of being the place where, you know, where you tend to get the best benefits, right, um, unionized jobs. But that can't stop us from fighting for it for everybody because it's just the right thing to do. So not only is it the right thing to do, but the nature of these, like, atomized health plans make it really costly for the, com- the person has to fit the bill, you know, the company, you know, the union, and it becomes an issue that way. And it's kind of like a ridiculous issue. You know, this isn't an issue anywhere else in the modern world where, 
It's not considered the third world. They do not have our system. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, that's true for a number of things in the United States in regards to labor issues. You're definitely right about that. I mean, and one of the things, too, is that, you know, as we're, you know, trying to fight, you know, to increase people's wages, and as you said earlier, you know, wages have been flat for for workers for decades. Um, You try to fight for higher wages for workers, and one of the forces you're up against is the high cost of of healthcare. And so, you know, every time you try to 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 raise the wages to get ahead of the curve, um, you, you're faced with this this real um, this real obstacle that can't be ignored. That the that the cost of healthcare goes up so much that the employer, you know, can to a certain extent say, look, we're really being crushed by the raises in our premiums. And so because the money's going out the door to the to the insurance companies, we don't have that money to put in the pockets of the workers, right? And so that model is not sustainable because it only goes backwards. It only you know, it, it you know, there's we had workers during the Christie administration when they moved to Chapter 78, um, that even though we negotiated raises for workers, the rise in their share of the of the healthcare premium rose so sharply that it actually erased any wage gain that we that we achieved through the contract. So people, even though we would get them a two percent raise in a given year. Um, they w- would actually be making less money that year than they were the year before, even though we negotiated a raise, because their 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 portion of the healthcare premium would actually go up more than what the raise was. So Oy. that model is just not sustainable with this private health insurance model, and so the only way to really fix it and spread the the you know the um uh, the way to pay for it is to spread it a- across the entire populace, right? And, th- and then take that out of, out of the equation so that now when you're negotiating for wages, um, you're, not, you're not hitting up against that, that dramatically increasing um, healthcare cost that is being just, you know, monopolized by these private insurance companies. Yeah, it really is bad that way, and it's something that we've actually found on this show, that there is uh, some support from businesses that don't want to pay this, but they want their people to have health care, and it is like a certain burden on them, you know, like if you have like all this money going to health care, that could go to, you know, like a good increase in wages, it could go to a little more R&D, for example, but it's just being sucked up by health care costs, and this country, you know, we've seen does not do healthcare very well. That now we've made legalized CBD, and now everybody's seeing the benefits of CBD because they're, what they were doing before wasn't really working very well. So there's any number of issues with healthcare, quite unfortunately, here in the United States on both levels. Death, cost, death. and the care. Yeah. So that's where we're at, you know. You gotta, you gotta, you know. There's the, the big fight you have to have, um, and there's so many issues. It's healthcare, 
Um, you know, but you know, there's issues that people don't even think about as being union issues or, um, but they are, or, or, or community issues, right? Things we need to care about, like, you know, the most vulnerable workers in our communities, um, and their ability to get to work. Right. And so that's why, um, you know, I, I have the, 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 the benefit of being both part of an organization that fights is fighting for driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants from the community level through the Latino Action Network, but also with the support of my union, CWA, who also, you know, even though it doesn't necessarily impact our members directly, um, it does impact um, the the family members of our our members and the community uh, neighbors of our members. And so... So CWA has been a great partner in helping us push for driver's licenses for undocumented. And it's been a long struggle. We've been fighting for this for over 18 years. And it seems now that we kind of have, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, there, these, the, the bills are finally coming up for, um, you know, for, for, for a vote within committees um, um, on December 9th. And we're looking at actual votes in the full Senate and full assembly on December 16th. So it's very possible that before the new year, New Jersey might be the next state to have driver's licenses available to undocumented immigrants. Yeah, that would be uh, really great. You know, on a, you know, we had AWA, you know, we're fully in favor of uh, licenses for, for the undocumented. It's kind of like cannabis, you know, reform. It's like, you know, we know what's going on here. You know, we just need to like, kind of like deal with the situation as it is, for example. You know, people are driving. They need to get to work. And it's crazy to think that Jersey (laughs) has some of the better public transportation in the United States, uh, which really says a lot about public transportation in the United States. Uh, Quite unfortunately, that driving really is like the best way to get to work. And, you know, a lot of times people work like in office parks that are very far from, like, residential um, places. You know, we live, like, in a very sprawling, diverse, you know, state here. And that's not unique to New Jersey that, you know, people live in one area and then they work in another area. It's very, unfortunately, it's quite different that way than the 30s and 20s when people worked in factories that were in their neighborhoods. You know, now you might have to drive 40 minutes to the office park. Uh, for, you know, a manufacturing job, for a warehouse job, for, you know, a white college job. Yeah, I mean, you know. Well, that's great, though, to see that uh, licenses is moving, at least. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, look, we we also, you know, we're uh, Latino Action Network was, and TWA is very supportive of, of legalization of marijuana, right? And um, and because mainly because you know the the negative impact that um, that criminalization has had on on our communities and you know from the CWA perspective you know we have a lot of members um, you know who are African American and Latino and and have families who have been torn apart by by incar- you know mass incarceration. Um, over, you know, people being incarcerated over a little bit of marijuana. And so, um, and, and, and the reality is that, you know, it's even though, you know, and you know this better than I do, but even though um, marijuana use is 
just as prevalent in the white community, um, it's, it's, it's predominantly and overwhelmingly African-Americans and Latinos who get locked up if they get uh, found out with any marijuana on them. So, you know, from that perspective, it's, it's very important to, to us um, to get this done. Unfortunately, it looks like, you know, it's kind of sputtering out in New Jersey. Um, there's a movement, there was a movement on the part of the Senate president uh, to want to put it on the ballot for next, next November um, and let the voters decide it. Um, and recently we heard that the governor um, came out in support of uh, uh, decriminalization, um, which, you know, is not as good as, as legalization. Um, people could still get in trouble for having um, small amounts of marijuana, but they would face fines instead of incarceration, which could be seen as a step forward, but it's not as good because, you know, we have, you know, families who even those fines um, could end up, you know, put throwing them into crisis or throwing them further into crisis. Um, and then that crisis could end up leading to, to drastic measures that could end up in incarceration anyway. So, you know, really dismayed by the the, the change um, and, and the and the the change of direction that's been uh, happening in Trenton over the past you know few weeks actually um, on this issue. <laughs> I am very dismayed uh, to say the utter least. Uh, unfortunately, I've <laughs> no, I've been following that very closely. For those who don't know, I've recently become editor of HeadyNJ.com as my uh, independent uh, contractor uh, position, you know, editing a, a news site, you know, covering this issue. And it's not only, for example, the issue of social justice, which is a very important thing, but it is the idea if you do legalize it, it is a source of good jobs. And in an, an economy where some of the most of the jobs created since the Great Recession were only mixed jobs, you know, jobs at McDonald's or warehouses. This is a source of legitimate, good, white-paying, uh, white-collar, white-collar, uh, good-paying jobs. For example, you have a lot of scientists. You have a lot of uh, technical uh, growers. You know, it's really interesting that way. And moreover, you know, the UFCW has an agreement where they're trying to unionize some of the dispensary workers. So, win-win that way. Ideally. If you could get it, if only you could get it passed, but that is quite unfortunate that it has not passed, and there's any number of reasons why one could speculate, none of them being good. That's right. Yeah, man. So, look, I mean, I don't know what we can do, but, you know, we're trying to put our heads together with people and um, figure out if we can somehow revise this um uh, you know, this movement to get legalization. Yeah. So the thing is, people think, oh, yeah, referendum, it works in California. Unfortunately, California's ballot mechanism is quite different than New Jersey's, whereby you can kind of put in like very specific wording in a ballot referendum and get enough signatures, and then it pretty much gets on the ballot and it gets passed. Here... You know, you have to have the legislature first pass a bill, which 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 bewilders me because somehow we have the votes to pass a bill for referendum, but not to actually pass a bill. 
And not only that, but after the referendum is passed, as I understand it, another bill has to be passed. So it's horribly convoluted, quite unfortunately. Um, it ticks the can of reform down a year, which is doubly unfortunate because implementation has taken about a year and a half, <coughs> excuse me, at least, that we've seen across the country. So to get the real effects that we want from legalization are going to take a while. But at least we have a path, which is still better than nothing. Yeah, and look, it's about cowardice, honestly. You know, they want to do this as a referendum so that, you know, if it goes down, they can say, well, that's what the voters wanted. And if it passes, you know, they can say to the naysayers, well, look, it wasn't us. It was, it was the voters, right? So it's cowardice on both on both ends on this issue. But, you know, uh, you know, what else can you expect from these, these fools in Trenton? <laughs> yes, yes, that, that is uh, very true, uh, to say the least as Trenton is quite the place to be one way or another when advocating and fighting the good fights. Now, I had gone, actually, in spring. I was there uh, in Trenton the day uh, for legalization and for a wage theft bill, uh, and both bills died uh, that day in spring. Now, very thankfully, you know, wage theft was revised, and we were able to get it signed into law uh, this uh, past summer. In August, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. which is good, you know, towards that end. But you know, we're still fighting here for legalization, both for the social justice aspect and you know, for the economic aspect. Yeah. So, hey, look, you know, we'll keep chugging along. Um, we'll figure out what we can do to get that to get that passed. Um, and if it comes down to being on the ballot, we'll. You know, we'll uh, play our part and and get the vote out for that. Yeah, that well, that, that's the upside is that people expect you know, it's 2020. You know, it's going to be pretty easy to get the Democratic vote out. You know, they'll vote for it. It won't be terribly hard. You know, I think it was in 2013 when there was an increase in the minimum wage when Christie won re-election. I believe that to be true. I myself was in Virginia at the time. Um, but these things do happen, so, you know, at least there is a path forward, and uh, there are things that can be done, ideally, you know, the medical program is expanding, which is something, at least, that does help patients, mm-hmm. but uh, it is difficult, you know, for patients, because it is quite expensive, you know, the cannabis there in these dispensaries, um, and, you know, it's not only good quality, the advocates, many ag uh, cannabis advocates advocate for something called home grow, whereby you just grow it at home, um, mm-hmm. which is an interesting solution. You know, not everybody wants to grow, you know, but you would able to be able to get the medicine for free that way. Uh, but it's an interesting situation because, to me, you know, it does speak to these larger economic issues um, that we're having of people not being able to afford things. You know, because of wage stagnation, because of discrimination. Uh, but the only solution we can have is this tiny little fix versus the big change that we really need. Yeah. So, yeah, look, you know, I wish everything could get done all at once. Um, 
you know, but as we see with other things, look, this driver's license, this driver's license issue, we've been, we've been trying to get this done for 18 years, right? Um, and even though we're coming, I think, to the end of the tunnel, um, you know, it has been a hard 18 years. So, um, you know, I would love to see something happen over the next few weeks where in lame duck we can get the, uh, you know, the legalization bill um, done, but um, it's not looking very good. So, but hopefully, you know, you can cross your fingers and hope that, uh, you know, that cooler heads prevail and, and uh, they can get something together. But if not, the struggle continues. That's crazy that you've been fighting for for licenses for 18 years. That's literally like so many things that have changed like in society, like in the last 18 years. Like it's it's beguiling. Like no cell phones, certainly no smartphones, no no apps. I can say like pay phones were probably more ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And you know, I mean, I remember when you know, the undocumented workers first started asking for the licenses. And I was like, I was like, really, you want that? Because, you know, um, you know, if they create a license for you, then, you know, there'll be a target on you, you know? Um, And they were like, there's a target on us anyway, because if we get caught driving without a license, we go to jail and then they call ICE and we're deported. So at least if you have the license, for the most part, you're not now. When you're driving, you're not committing a crime, and there's no reason for them to arrest you, and then in turn, no reason for them to call ICE. So, you know, this was something that you know, 18 years ago, 15 years ago, um, you know, this was coming from the community itself, and and they were like, man, help us, and you know, and they made a lot of sense, and so that's why we've been fighting for this for so long. And it wasn't easy because it's not just about D's and R's, you know, we've, um, you know, we had a hard time getting Democrats to get behind this. And right now, Democrats control all the, all the, the um, arms of state government and, and we still haven't been able to get it done. Right. So um, it takes more than just um, electing one party over the other. It takes, you know, electing good people and then putting pressure on the rest of them. Um, so, you know, th- and that speaks to what's happening at the national level, right? You know, it's not just – you can't just elect any, you know, uh, or pick anybody to be a Democratic candidate for president. You need to pick the right person who is who is going to really care about the issues that matter the most to us. Very true. Very true. It is very difficult, you know, to pick a good presidential candidate. Um, AWA is ostensibly uh, neutral on that. Um, but the issues, like, that is the problem, you know, I suppose, like, in part with you, like, the United States, you know, we have this broad party, you know, where somehow, especially, like, in the 30s, must have been even worse, because then you had, like, New York progressives and then, like, real Dixiecrats, you know, like, in the same party, and they're literally, like, the opposition there. You know, here, you know, I guess we've made some progress in that front in terms of the party being a little more ideologically united, but, you know, we're still seeing that, you know, that we see a lot of these situations where the union worker, state senate president is a lot more moderate than the rich banker, and, you know, that flips the traditional narrative on its head. Yeah, Definitely. 
and you know, it, 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 and it's very complicated, right? Because there's days where you can you can find common ground with him on on certain issues um, around civil rights, um, and then it's and then it's, you know, in the next breath, he's attacking you know um, other union members, right? So, you know, these things are all very complicated. But at the end of the day, you just have to build up a strong resistance movement that can push back against you know the bad elements. On our on all sides, and Latino Action Network has done a good job of that with very little money, if I might <laughs> if I might say publicly, but but with the name and with uh, good connections to party leaders and you know great leadership, you know we we have been able to make a dent, some good great dents, you know, in New Jersey for like struggling Hispanic workers. Yeah, I mean, we don't have a lot of resources, but but it, the power is in the network itself, right? It's, it's that we have a very deep network um, with with basically connections to grassroots and grass top leaders um, and community activists throughout the entire state. So, you know, we we're able to, um, you know, when there's a legislator who thinks that they're immune from us, we're able to mobilize people in their own communities, their own constituents to, to rise up and, and get in their faces. So they find out really quickly that there's nowhere in the state that you can escape us. So that has been what has helped us have, um, as somebody said uh, yesterday to, to, to me, um, you know, we punch way above our weight. Um, we're not a high-powered, oh, you know, we're not a high-powered, high-financed, lobbying firm or organization, but the, the, the work we've done to build our network and to leverage that network um, has, has made us um, more powerful than what money can buy. Well, there you go. You know, if you're able to bring people together, you know, across the stage, you know, working together on multiple issues, you know, with dedicated volunteers, you know, you're able to produce something and able to get results that way. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So all we got, you know, we can do is just continue to work hard. Um, and but it's important for us to recruit the next generation of leaders because, you know, we, you know, people you can't do it forever, and it's not healthy. You want to have young people getting involved and and taking up the mantle. So we're constantly we're happy that you're involved with Latino Action Network because you're part of that new generation that's coming up that's going to be leading this these fights. Um, you know, from now and going into the future. No, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite touching there. That is the catch then, trying to get people involved, keeping them involved, you know, as life happens between work, relationships, traffic, chores, and everything, <laughs> trying to get people, like, involved and come to a meeting, you know, whether even when there's, like, free food or something, you know, it feels very hard. <laughs> to get people to come and, like, drive people out of their apathy and to get them to believe that change can be happened, especially, like, in this world we're living, you know, that's not really the norm, for example. It's not the norm that these fights happen, that people get involved. Not everybody's going to community meetings all the time. They are more more so after Trump, but, you know, that those types of organizations only, you know, um, are nascent, you know, variously and... Not all of them are focused on, like, some key economic issues, but that's another story there. 
Yeah, I mean, look, you 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 work with what you can, what you what you have, and you know, as you can, as you see with with land, you know, you can get a lot done with a small group of people who are are you know constantly chugging away at it, and the rest of the people who are, you know, on this and outer rings of the circle, um, you know, they always jump in when needed, right? They might not be at every meeting, but if you need them to to, to you know, if you need to activate them to do their part, they always come through. And so by respecting people's time and and respecting the changes in their lives and constantly recruiting new people to to assist in those activities or take their place if those people need to step out for a while, um, we've been able to keep it going. And, you know, that's that's basically the model. And and so, you know, a lot of groups are gonna have a small core, you know, dedicated group. Um, but they're always helped out by the, the bigger, um, the bigger network, and that goes the same yeah, for the union. You know, the union sure. we have the union staff, which is relatively small. Um, in my union, we have ten thousand members. We have eleven staff reps, right? That 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 uh, service and organize these ten thousand members. But we don't do it alone. We do it with the help of three hundred shop stewards. Right, who are volunteers? The shop stewards, they work in their jobs. They're they're social workers. They're preschool teachers. They're food service workers. Um, that's what they do all day. But when they're called into action to volunteer to help organize their peers, they do a kick-ass job. Nice. How does that work then for those unfamiliar with like a shop steward? So basically, you know, um, you know, our union and a lot of unions, they're democratic organizations. So they elect their leadership, they elect their president, vice president, treasurer, secretary, all that. I'm the vice president of CWA Local 1037. But they also get to select their union rep for their work site, which is a, you know, which is a volunteer. So if you got a hundred people work, or let's say you got ten people working. At your work site, they all get together and they and you know they select one of the ten to be the shop steward, meaning that that is the union leader amongst them. That person is the one that people go to when they have a grievance. That's the person they go to for dealing with management, um, and that's the person who helps to mobilize them if if they need to be mobilized. And that's the person that is in contact with the main union office and with the paid staff. Um, because, of, you know, when you have 11 people who have to service three, um, 10,000, there's no way that we can be everywhere all the time. So the shop stewards serve as the eyes and ears on the ground and deal with the day-to-day issues and usually only have to come to the staff reps when an issue becomes so big that it's above their, their, their level, right, their capacity. Um, and not capacity in terms of intelligence or anything, but these people have their their jobs to do. So when it gets so when the issue becomes big enough that they can't deal with that issue and do their day job, then they kick it over to us and we take it from there. Um, but a lot of times it's it goes the other way too. You know, we know there's a big issue, there's a big fight happening, like in Trenton, over you know Chris. I mean Chris Christie or or Senate President Sweeney's path to progress, where he's attacking public sector workers, health care benefits, and pensions. 
and we need to get make sure that the workers know about the issue, are educated about it, and are ready to mobilize. We we put together the materials and the talking points. We bring all our shop stewards together in one meeting, um, all 300 of them, along with shop stewards from other locals. So you'll have six, 700 shop stewards together. They'll get the training all in one day. They go back into their work sites, hold meetings with their coworkers, and transmit the information that way. And if we need to go down and rally in Trenton, they go back and they, you know, they have these meetings and they sign people up to get on the bus, which we provide. And then that's how we end up getting thousands of workers down to Trenton for a big rally to oppose, you know, Steve Sweeney's attack on public sector workers. We couldn't have, we can't do that work without our worksite leaders, our shop stewards. Nice. So then, the, so I guess then they're regularly trained, you know, I guess kept up to date about the nuances of, you know, the fight that the union's involved in. And are they, like, elected um, regularly? Yeah, well, they, you know, they, they're selected by their coworkers. They have to, to get, um, their coworkers have to sign petitions designating them as the shop steward. And then the union, you know, once they put on those petitions, then the union will actually, you know, name them as shop steward. So, you know, they, they have to demonstrate that they have the support of their, of their, of their peers. Right. And nice. so that's how, that's how we do it. And it's, you know, it's, you know, when we train them, it's, it's to give them the information, right? Because again, if the person, their day job is being a social worker, that's what they're an expert on. We bring them to the training to explain, listen, you know, this is what they're, this is what they're trying to do down in Trenton. This is how it impacts you. This is what you can do to, to stop it, right? And, and they're all very intelligent people who, you know, once they get the information, and they know what to do with it, right? And they and they become quite practiced because we face so many attacks. They they become quite quite practiced at mobilizing and going down there and punching back. And because they punch back, you know, Steve Sweeney's path to progress hasn't moved an inch, is not has not seen the light of day at all because these workers have not given him an inch. You know, whenever he tries to do his town halls to promote his attacks, you know, PWA <laughs> members like swarm the place and shout him down, you know. Um, so and, you know, they're 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 the best worker army there is. Chris yeah, that, that has been... we're approaching the end. Uh, we moved right into the AWA report because what you guys were talking about was so fascinating. So uh, uh, it's continued, but we only have five minutes of program and I'd like both of you to uh, let people know how they can access what you're doing and become part of it. All right. Look, if um, you want to uh, learn more about the Latino Action Network, you can go to www.latinoactionnetwork.com dot org um, and all the information and you'll see what we've been up to and how to contact us. We do have a conference coming up February 1st, 2020 open to the public. It's free. Um, so please, if you want to get involved, the, a great way to do that is to sign up um, and register for our conference and come out and hang out with us in Newark on Saturday, February 1st. If you want to learn more about CWA local 1037, it's easy. You go to www.cwa.org. 
1037.org. And there you'll learn all about our union and what we do. And and if you're someone who is interested in having a union in your workplace, give us a call. Um, uh, you can reach us at 973-623-1828. And we'd love to talk to you about um, building workplace power in your workplace. Awesome. And Dan, you're wearing more hats than last time we spoke. Uh, would you care to share with folks how they can contact you? <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, so uh, for AWA, uh, we are the American Workforce Association. Our website is AmericanWorkforce.net. I urge you to uh, look us up there. You know, read up read up about us. You know, we also maintain a very fa- uh, active Facebook group uh, on Facebook. We are the American Workforce Association. Uh, Incredibly awesome. I would like to thank you both for a very informative uh, and thought-provoking show. And I'd like to wish you, your families, your friends, and all your loved ones uh, a happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on. And to all who joined us from home, uh, this is Hercules and Dan and Chris wishing you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid.